Uh, if you want to open your Bibles up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It'll actually be 37 on Wednesday, so. 29, yeah, I wish, yeah. <laughs> but moved here to Prineville when I was uh, 27, so it'll be 10 years this year in Prineville. It's kind of a, kind of a neat landmark, but uh, as we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, really... Uh, landing at verses 14 through 17, and 16 and 17 in particular. Uh, Let me read it with us today. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word and we have this part three of uh, kind of a Bible college type class um, Lord, we just, I know that there's this balance between instruction and preaching. And so, Lord, um, we do want to grow in our understanding of your word and the authority of it and theology. Um, But, Lord, we just do not want it to just land in our head and not our heart, Lord. And so would you just apply the teaching today to our hearts, just bring conviction for where we have been negligent or rebellious or fallen short. And Lord, let Jesus be preached and trumpeted as the greatest hero of the world um, today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, we uh, are on part three of Why Bother with the Bible? Okay, part three. So you should have note sheets. You can fill in the blanks as you go along. And I would just highly encourage, uh, if you have missed the last two weeks, to get on our website, download the teaching, listen to it. It's also a podcast. There's a few different platforms to listen to it on. And attached to that teaching uh, are my notes, so you can have those with you. Um, Also, if you're newer to the church, we have a private Facebook page that is kind of our bulletin for the church, you know. Um, it is where prayer requests are posts, announcements, re- praise reports, all kinds of stuff. So um, if we're not friends yet, hey, you know, connect, connect, all right? And then I will put you on that page where I also have been show- sharing my notes and things uh, real quickly with you. Um, so uh, week one was why bother with the Bible inspiration, okay? And we looked at that the Bible is inspired by God, which means it's breathed out by God. It is, uh, as 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit. And that language speaks of they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were driven by the Holy Spirit to write these things. The same language for driven is used in the book of Acts when Luke says that Paul's ship uh, set sail and was driven on its course. So essentially, the, the holy men of God put their sails up and positioned themselves And the Lord drove them 
to write these words in their own styles, in their own languages, with their own backgrounds. Their personalities come out in these books that are written in the Bible. So inspiration, uh, boy, it's a lot to get into in an introduction. So I'm just going to stop there for inspiration. Uh, do your homework, listen online. But uh, inspiration has an implication that came to part two. That was last week's study. Uh, and that implication is inerrancy, okay? Inerrancy, I-N-E-R-R-N-C, okay? And uh, inerrancy just means that the Bible is without error. It's incapable of error. Um, another hard word with an I is infallible, okay? So it's, it's not fouled up. It's not errored, okay? So critics and skeptics, that, you know, pick apart the Bible and say this contradicts and this and that. And there's so many errors in the Bible. You just can't trust it. We looked at how that's just not true last week. Okay. So again, listen online. So part three, also an IN word, little alliteration to help you out is uh, why bother with the Bible interpretation, interpretation. How are we to interpret this inspired, inerrant uh, book? How do we interpret it? And what are the results that come from interpretation, okay? So essentially, as we read our text today, that was verses 14, 15 through 17, uh, first we deal with scripture's origin. That is where it comes from. Then we will deal with its purpose, the end of verse 16 going into 17, what it's intended for, okay? Essentially, it's that we're going from creed to conduct. From creed in verse 15, what we believe, uh, to what does that mean for us? How does it affect us? How are we to understand this book? I mean, hold this book in your hand for a second. For those of you that are smartphones, you're just like, whoa, that is meaty. Okay, other than that, you know, man, that's got some thickness to it. It's got some girth. It's intimidating. How do I even go about understanding my Bible? Well, you do it properly, Okay. There is a right way to understand the Bible. In fact, that, that verse Peter uses on inspiration says in uh, 1 Peter, uh, 2 Peter 1.20 that no scripture is of private interpretation. Uh, no one just gets to go ahead and just share uh, what it just means to them, okay? Uh, but there is, there's purpose behind and there's propriety behind this book. The Bible is not a bunch of little ideas only found by initiates who say what it means to you or what it means to me. If you read the book of Leviticus, for instance, which can be so intimidating, uh, you know, you don't want to just say, well, Leviticus means this to me because it's so crazy out of my world and out of my culture. Essentially, when you read Leviticus, it's like looking at one of those magic eye paintings or books. Have you ever seen one of those? Essentially, you've got to stick your nose. This is the trick I've heard. You know, you got to stick your nose up to it and kind of go cross-eyed and then slowly pull it away, you know, until you're looking at this thing. <laughs> and you're just like, I think it's an eagle landing in a nest and it's coming at me, you know. Um, but that's basically how you read Leviticus. You look at the big picture. All right, there's a whole Genesis through Revelation going on in Leviticus, even. You look at the sacrifices and you begin to see the big picture. You look at the priesthood and you begin to see the true and better priest. You look at the, the blood shed once 
rather multiple times, and you begin to see the greater blood that was shed once for all, so on and so forth. Um, but it's, in da- it's dangerous to interpret the Bible based on what it means just to you, okay? Uh, we want to avoid that, and we want to grow our body in being mature in interpretation and moving apart from, um, away from that language. The main meaning of the passage is the plain meaning of the passage. One of my favorite quotes from Alistair Begg is that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things as you read the Bible. He also has taught me that if the first sense makes the best sense, seek no other sense, lest you come up with nonsense, okay? Good interpretation principle. Now, Bruce Milne, who's a a fresh book for me this time around in this teaching, says that the question of infallibility, that word means, remember, it's the same as inerrant or it's similar to inerrant, that the Bible is without error, okay? The question of infallibility cannot be isolated from that of our interpretation of Scripture, okay? That's why we're not just doing a teaching last week on inerrancy and then nothing on interpretation as we move on with an inerrancy okay um great harm has been done milne goes on great harm has been done over the ages and continues to be done by those claiming infallibility for dubious even eccentric interpretations of the bible humanity is fallen And hence, a sinful bias permeates all human experience, not least its aspiration to knowledge and knowledge of God and his truth in particular. So we just recognize that we are sinful, fallen beings. And so great care and work has to go into uh, proper interpretation of the scriptures. Okay, Uh, so. The way to avoid weird understanding, follow these principles. Now, the following are principles of hermeneutics. Herma what? Hermeneutics, all right? Hermeneutics. And by the way, your footnotes should spell it out nicely for you. Hermeneutics is the science of and art of biblical interpretation, the setting forth of methodological principles and techniques necessary to interpret the biblical text. Okay, so hermeneutics, the science and art of biblical interpretation. So those of you that love science, I believe in science, you know, hermeneutics is for you. Those of you that are more free and artistic thinking, you know, perfect. Yeah, it's an art to interpret, but it has its lines that you have to color within, right? Um, The approach to Bible study that governs our methodology or our hermeneutics is often referred fourfold as the literal, historical, grammatical, contextual approach to the Bible, okay? Just don't shut off yet. If anything, just keep reading with me, okay? Just keep going, okay? You'll get through it, okay? Fourfold approach to uh, the scriptures, and your footnote will tell you that that's uh, not necessarily in any particular order, especially even in our notes. Now, interpret the scripture not based on pastor's explanation, okay? 
you want to watch out for favorite preacher-isms, okay? I've got my favorite preachers, all right? Love these guys, respect them, but I can't just stake my claim on whatever Alistair Begg says or, or whoever else, you know, um, John Piper, you know, um, uh, gosh, who are my favorites these days? I've got a, a lot of them. There so many. Um, I don't know if Robert Dines in there. No, he, of course he is. He's my father, my father in the faith. Um, so it would just favor preacherisms. You just can't land there, okay? We got to do more homework than just that. Uh, rather straightforward meaning of the passage. Scripture must be interpreted literally. This principle, technically known as the historical grammatical method, takes the natural, boy, we are a culture that loves natural, right? All natural, organic, right? The natural, straightforward sense of a text or passage as fundamental. In order to do that, you must do it, first of all, according to its original meaning. Understanding the historical context first. We need, therefore, to uncover as fully as possible the original setting and meaning before attempting to relate it to ourselves. So with this historical aspect of it, first of all, the Bible was written at particular times in history by particular people facing particular problems in particular cultures. To arrive at the accurate sense of any passage necessitates that we first understand the culture, the history, and geography that surrounds its message, right? Uh, and so when you come to these problem passages in the Bible, the difficult ones, and typically you know what they are based upon the um, controversy that they cause when read or studied, then you, it's especially important to fall back on these principles of interpreting the text. Looking at the history, Bible study seeks to answer two things. Number one, what did it mean then? And two, what does it mean now? All our mistakes are to try to answer the second question first. Oftentimes we come to Bible study, to core group settings, to home group settings. A lot of times this happens in the, the small group setting. And we just ask, hey, what does this mean to you guys as you read it? And then just all sorts of just putrid stuff comes out of mouths that are based upon our preference points and our own lives, you know, and what we really want to see happen in our lives that we think God should get behind, you know, frankly. Okay. And so we, we begin to answer that second question first when really first should be first, I think, you know, just don't want to get dogmatic on it, but one is number one. All right. Um, and so uh, we want to spend the bulk of our time uh, trying to figure out what it meant then. Because it can't mean now what it didn't mean then. An example is, why is the Gospel of John in the Bible? Well, John actually tells us why it's there. John chapter 20. Now granted, it's in chapter 20, it's not in chapter 1. But it's good to know when people say, hey, by the way, I'm writing this whole thing to you for this purpose. So don't go off on your own purpose. I'm telling you the purpose, okay? And he says in John 20, 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that believing you may have life in his name. Why was 1 John written? 1 John, he's good at telling us that, John guy, John boy. Chapter 5, verse 12 of 1 John says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So as you read 1 John, it's absolutely clear that people who say they believe in God, but live away counter or contrary to the word of God, they are lying and deceiving. They don't have assurance of salvation. They don't have that life. That's a warning for them in 1 John. And then John is incredible because it tells us Jesus is God. And as you believe that Jesus is God, you found life. And so you need to ask yourself, why was this written? Why was this written? To do that, we've got to bridge the cultural gap. Understanding the Bible properly requires that we clear our minds of all ideas, opinions, and systems of our own day and attempt to put ourselves into the times and the surroundings of the apostles and prophets who wrote. And so... A point here is when the reformers emphasized the need to get back to the scriptures in Martin Luther's day, they emphasized this historical, grammatical interpretation of things. It helps you get to the culture of things. It helps you get to the context of things. So again, historical, the setting that the books were all written in, the circumstances involved in the writing. Secondly, grammatical, determining the meaning of the Bible by studying the words and the sentences in their normal and plain sense. Noah would have found himself in a lot easier circumstances if he would have had a written Bible to go off of. There's a tradition that uh, the worms came and said, we were told you were taking creatures that came to you in pairs. A simple biblical lexicon would have been good for Noah, like pairs? Wait a minute. Okay, so got to be careful. See what can go wrong. All right. And then the rhetorical, studying how literary quality of a portion of a Bible affects the interpretation. You don't have this in your notes. And by the way, I've got like 36 pages in one teaching of how to interpret the Bible. And I was just going to go easy on you guys today. Just give you eight. Okay, so you don't have everything. You don't have all the good stuff even. In fact, I kind of put the bad stuff in. So you'll come to school of ministry when we start it up again. And, you know, you'll come check out the rest of it all. But one of the quotes in the rest of my notes is, context is king. Context is king. You got to check out the context in which the passage was written. Because it influences how that passage is to be understood. Really helpfully for you. You got to look at the verses immediately before and after the passage. You got to look at the paragraph and the book in which the verses occur. You got to look at the dispensation in which it was written. What time period was God dealing with men in? You got to look at the message of the entire Bible. You got to look at the historical, cultural environment of the time it was written got to ask and answer the questions. Who wrote the book? 
What time was it written? What prompted the author to even write the book? What were the problems or the situations or the needs he was addressing? What is the book all about? And to whom was it written? Merriam-Webster defines culture as the total pattern of human behavior that includes thought, speech, action, and artifacts. And as the customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group. So helping out by Webster there on what all we've got to look at as we go into a second Timothy for instance, or a first Timothy that gets into all sorts of fun stuff with women and how they dress and who should be in leadership and who should govern a church and what, you know, how should we, how should our postures be within the church? How should we treat one another? All of that, you got to know what was even going on when this was written, because I don't want to dive into that hard stuff before I know what Paul even meant uh, when, uh, when he wrote it. Alan Johnson says, if we fail to give attention to these matters of culture, then we may be guilty of eisegesis, reading into the Bible our Western 21st century ideas. Context concern forces us away from our private meanings back into the framework of the author. All right, so there's two Jesuses, if you will, as you study the Bible, it's spelled different than the, the Jesus, right? Uh, there's exegesis, which is what we want. Ex means to come out from, okay, or to bring out from, to draw out from. That's what we want to do. We want exegesis as we read the Bible and study the Bible. We just want to take it and let it speak for itself. Bring it out, Lord, bring it out, okay? What we do not want is eisegesis, which is to put into, all right? We want to, we don't want to take all of our political climate going on in America right now and all of our own personal upbrings that's different from yours and yours is different from mine and mine's different from the Zimbabwe and you know and and we don't want to take just what is our external circumstance and preferences and then say well surely he's got to be meaning this because you will end up stripping verses out and misusing them and tossing them them aside as J.I. Packard says you would with evangelical cigarettes okay so we don't treat the Bible that way. We just let the Bible speak for itself. Plain sense is the best sense. Okay? Um, Bernard Ram wrote, Attention to the cultural studies in the Bible enables us to know the original, literal, socially designated meaning of the word, phrase, or a custom. Literal interpretation is crippled without the help of cultural studies. Again, like biblical history, cultural matters are not niceties we may search out if we have the time, but which we may ignore under the pressure of time and circumstances. They are indispensable for the accurate understanding of Holy Scripture. And something to add on top of that, by Milquilkin, is all scriptures should be received as normative for every person in all societies of all time unless the Bible itself limits the audience, okay? So, again, in an effort to avoid weirdness in our Bible studying, 
your Bible studying and interpreting also should be done according to its literary form. According to its literary form. So, what are you studying? Think of right now, what are you reading through in your Bible? Are you reading anything, first of all? Like, we just encourage you to start that. But, um, then what? what are, where are you at? Okay. Um, uh, is it poetry? Is it prose? Are you reading a parable? Allegory? A metaphor? With a simile? I don't know. Okay, well, that's okay. Just something you just got to start learning and, and ask yourselves as you're studying the Bible. For example, Proverbs says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Who doesn't love that verse, right? Parents, anybody? It's like, woohoo, all right, all right. Uh, how many have read that as a promise? It's not a promise, okay? That's a misapplication of the word. When a kid will end up going off the rails in a person's family, so many godly parents are put under bondage because at the end of the day, you've misapplied the scripture for them. It's a proverb, not a promise. Proverbs are axioms, which are statements of what is true most of the time. Okay? So you're getting into wisdom literature when you get into Proverbs. You're in the poetic books when you're in the Proverbs. So you don't take a wooden interpretation in a poetic book such as this where it's an axiom because then you put parents in condemnation when they've brought their children up within the church. They've read the Bibles, the children's Bibles. They've prayed for them, yet the sin nature in that child's going a bit wacky for a while and, and they're just like, what have I done? There's a whole lot behind that. But we don't want to mis uh, misinterpret or misapply Bible verses even such as that. Now, we do have, I will never, never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise. You can take that one to the bank. It's essential to, to determine what kind of literary genre we're talking about. A letter is different than a comic book. It's different than tax code. It's different than a history textbook. It's different than a Shakespearean sonnet. You can tell what it says by what it says. If you opened up a book and it began with once upon a time, you know it's a fairy tale and it has to be interpreted differently than the front page of a newspaper. Sort of. <laughs> okay. I don't know if you caught the joke in your notes there, but smiley face. If we want to avoid all sorts of weirdness, we've got to interpret according to the literal, plain meaning of the text. The Bible is not written in a kind of magical language that can only be unlocked by mysterious methods. To interpret literally, and I want you to catch this because there's, there's a little bit of like, what's literally mean as we get in? Okay, so just follow along, follow along. To interpret literally means that we seek to explain the sense of the author according to the customary, plain usage of language and words, okay? Um, you might not want to make sure you're reading that text right. A lot of problems have happened with camels back in the day. You're probably right. It probably is 
camel through the needle. Whoops, sorry about your camel. Okay, just want to make sure you're reading. No one knows what that, okay, forget it. Um, I didn't draw it. It's for the kids today. You likey? You likey. Eli likey. Okay. We want to take it literally, not, ready for it? Literalistically. Not a real word. Microsoft Word will throw it out. Okay. So hyphen it. All right. Literalistically. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole world. Ah! Okay. Don't think of big old eyeballs floating through the world. All right. Check this out. Read Song of Solomon's. This is how Solomon must have viewed Abishag. Your eyes are like doves. Well, it starts out nice. Your hair is like a flock of goats. That was a compliment back then. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes. Your lips are like scarlet thread. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David. And your breasts are like two fawn gazelles. <laughs> Just gets weird, doesn't it? You're not supposed to draw the Song of Solomon, okay? We must also be sensitive to the use of metaphor and other figures of speech. Or you come up with weird stuff, all right? We want to interpret according to the unity of the Bible. Interpret scripture with scripture. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. We look to see if the writer explains a difficult point in another place. Thus, for example, certain of the obscurities of the book of Revelation make sense when related to other prophetic sections of the Bible. So have the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel and the book of Isaiah open as you read the book of Revelation. Things will make a little more sense there to you. Calvin had a comment on the book of Romans, and we think it's sound advice that if a man understands the book of Romans, he has a sure road opened for him to the understanding of the whole scriptures. I like what Milne said. This approach to scripture interpretation asks us to take seriously the fact that the Bible has a unique and pervasive storyline. It is the story of God's gracious acts on the one hand and of human redemption on the other. This is the meta-narrative of scripture. Okay, so you'll hear that from time to time here at the church, the meta-narrative of scripture. And really it's the common thread that goes from Genesis through Revelation that there's one storyline. There's 66 books, but they're not 66 different stories. It's all telling and getting to you the point of God's love for the world and how he glorifies himself by sending his son Jesus to die and redeem fallen man. It's the meta-narrative or the story of oneself. That's what Genesis through Revelation is all about. Milne goes on to say, So the scriptures were composed and brought to their final form, the incomparable story of the sovereign, gracious God and his glorious and incomparable salvation spread across the centuries and millennia. The revealed word of God to all the passing ages, including our own. This great story, the meta-narrative of the Bible, is the implicit context of every verse of Scripture. It is accordingly the ultimately defining context for the meaning of every sentence and every word of God's revealed word. 
So when you come to the problem passage, breathe, step back a little bit, and say, how does this fit into God's story of himself? What is it saying, and why is it saying this? And so it will all be according to the purpose of Scripture. We'll study in just a little bit, reminding us of verse 15 in our text, that the Scripture is able to make you wise for salvation. And yet as the books and the videos come out, and they, it's not that they don't have a place, it's that the primary use is not for us to find out astrology and things like that. The primary use of the Bible is to make us wise for salvation. Again, Calvin once said, if you would learn astronomy or any other recondite hidden art, go elsewhere. John Stott says, the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. Therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. That was the Westminster Confession of Faith. So use scripture to find out more about scripture. This principle, technically known as the principle of harmonization, recognizes the unity and self-consistency of scripture deriving from its single divine author. Okay, so we want to be looking for God's story that is so consistent and harmonious, Genesis through Revelation. We want to read the Bible like Christians would read the Bible, like Christ Christians, right? We want to read the Bible making literal, legitimate, Christ-centered connections. By observing the storyline of the Bible, David Platt says, tracing theological themes, noticing where a passage stands in relation to Christ, and other justifiable interpretive methods. So, we interpret according to the purpose of the writer. It's important to note that the Bible can only be interpreted by the Holy Spirit. As Milne says, what we learn of God's truth is related less to the capacity of our brains than to the extent of our obedience. And so don't just go to do book work, brain work. Go to do heart work in the word. Go to bow your heart before the word of God. That's why Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let the Lord work in your heart purity, and you'll see him more and more. This is often why the young Christian surpasses the old believer. Whoever is at a place where they bow their heart before the word and begin obeying what they say they believe, the Lord will take and cause to be used. We interpret according to dynamic nature. The dynamic nature of the Bible. There's something very powerful about the Bible. As Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So God uses his word in accordance to his great goals for God's people 
their regeneration, and their sanctification. And so that takes us back to our text today. So if you've got your Bibles open, I believe that's towards the end of your note sheet there. Let's go back to the Bible. Let's open it up and let's move from what it is to what it is for. And I have intention next week, Lord willing, to get into chapter four, where he then goes on to say, well, preach the word to say what all is included in the word. We're going to look at the canon of scripture briefly uh, before we get into the text next week. So one more little school ministry style class next week. Bring your writing hand and utensil and all that good stuff. So we go now from what the Bible is, inspired, inerrant, infallible, interpreted correctly, to what it is for. Paul now goes on to show that the prophet of Scripture relates to both creed and conduct. Now, false teachers out there want to divorce those two things, creed and conduct, but we want to marry them. We want our belief to bring right behavior. So verse 15 tells us that from childhood, Timothy had known the Holy Scriptures. Anybody from childhood here today, you've known the Bible? This is part of your testimony, like raised in the church, mom and dad teaching me the Bible. Keep that hand up, Russell. I might, Russell, yeah, just, just so you know, I mean, okay. Higher, dude, higher. Okay. Well, the scriptures that Timothy had known since childhood are able to make you wise for salvation. So the first thing the Bible's for in our text here is to make you wise for salvation. I like the Greek here. I'm not like a Greek, Greek, a Greek obviously, that, that's, I have to explain to you. I'm not a Greek guru. <laughs> I know that surprises you. But in the Greek, it's, Sophisai, and, and wise in the Greek is Sophie. I love that. Sophia, right? Uh, Sophisai Soterium. Soteriology, it's the doctrine of salvation, okay? Sophisai Soterium, okay? Wise for salvation. The Bible helps us know how to contrive cleverly for deliverance. How can we be saved? You know, the Bible kind of gives us a threefold description of what it means to be saved. It's in the different tenses. In the past tense, the Bible shows us that I have been saved from my sins. Past tense. I can say and rejoice, I have been saved from sin's penalty. The Bible tells me that I will be saved from sin's presence, and that's in the future. And I am being saved from sin's power presently. So I have been saved from sin's penalty. Praise God, the wrath of God does not abide on me, thanks to Jesus and his sacrifice. I am so looking forward to that day when I will be saved from sin's presence. No more temptations and just that constant like battle going on. It's gone one day. And then presently, though, I am being delivered and saved from sin's power. And so I just want to ask you today, 
Have you been saved? I'm reminded way back in the day, there was this guy that my pastor Rob used to know uh, from Costa Mesa. And he got himself in some trouble. He ended up in prison. And uh, finally got out of prison while I was on staff in Corvallis. And I got to go pick him up from the airport when he first came and, and visited Pastor Rob. And uh, this guy, man, he was just coming out of prison like so on fire. Like I've just had however many years just in the presence of Jesus. And like he has been sanctifying me. And he, just everywhere we went, he's telling people about Jesus. Just talking about Jesus. And we sit down at, uh, you know, a diner. And the waitress comes up. What can I get you guys? And he's like, ma'am. Are you a saved waitress? You know, I just remember, are you a saved waitress? Okay, I got to remember that. Are you a saved waitress? Have you been saved today? Do you have that assurance that you have been saved? And you can just rejoice in that. I am saved by the grace of God through faith that I've put in him. I just believe what he's done for me on the cross has taken away my sins and washed away my sins, that they are remembered no more, that his blood just washes me as white as snow, and that the wrath of God isn't upon me anymore because I'm saved. Are you saved? Do you have that assurance? Man, today, today is the day of salvation. Are you currently in this process and you just know, man, the battle's going on. And I am presently being saved from sin's power. Oh man, I know the devil, man. He wants to get me to stumble and bumble along. I know that there's just constant temptation. And you know what? But there's freedom there. And on a day-by-day basis, I just, I'm free. More, yes, more today than I was yesterday. I'm being sanctified. There's no more power. And one day, because you're saved, do you look forward to just like, you know what? The devil will be dealt with gone no more of that junk and everything that he brings with it we are going to be in a place where we are just saved from any presence of wickedness or evil have you been saved how do you get saved how 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 does one do this that you speak of all right well our verse just goes right on to tell us in verse 15 it's through faith which is in christ jesus You've got to put your trust in Jesus. You've got to rest in Jesus. You've got to, you've got to say, like, Jesus, you're right. I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. I'm on the straight path to hell. Because of that, the wrath of God abides against me and in me. But you're right, Lord, that though I'm a sinner, you love me so much that you've sent your son to die in my place, to take my punishment, to take my penalty. And you say that if anyone believes in you, that'll all be washed away. I'll be a new creation. This almost sounds too easy. Kind of as a blow to my pride that I got to admit that, you know, I have messed up royally and I need somebody's help in life. But it's what you say. So, okay, Lord. It's trusting the Lord. It's confessing that he is true and right. It's what the Bible does for us. It points us to faith in Christ Jesus. This, this makes us wise for salvation. John 5, 39, Jesus is talking to the religious people and he says, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And so they were just all about just the Bible. 
like just make go through this religious exercise of reading the law all right and jesus says hey guys these are they which speak of me like you can't have the bible and not have jesus if you read the Bible and you're not getting to Jesus at the end of the day, you've missed the point. You've missed the mark. And there's some deception going on there. The Bible doesn't save us, but makes us wise so that we can be saved. Shows us our condition before God. Shows us God's remedy for that condition through his son, and tells us what to do about it. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him, and you will be saved. It's through Jesus Christ. Hate to burst your bubble, but it is not through whoever you want to just go ahead and fancy it to be through. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the apostles said, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. So go ahead and think of another name real quick. Sorry, not him. Go ahead, think of another one. Nope, not her. Go ahead, think of it. Think of some deity. Go ahead, think of it. Yeah. Nope. All right. Native. Let's try Native American. Waka Tatankane or something like that. You know. Nope. Sorry. Great Spirit. Mm-mm. All right. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, Yesu, Isu, Yesush, all right? Jesus, that's the name. No other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Westminster Catechism says, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so, for, do so far manifest the goodness, goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. So let me pause there. All my fumbling and bumbling there. You probably didn't even catch that. So what the Westminster Catechism says is, although looking at the stars and the works of creation leave men inexcusable before God for knowing that there is a creator and they are accountable to him. Catechism or confession goes on to say, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and declare that his will unto his church and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing which makes the holy scriptures to be most necessary those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. Okay, the Westminster Catechism back in the 1600s speaks and, and pulls the scriptures and gets the scriptures and brings before English Parliament the doctrine of the church to be withheld by the government. And the government said, hey, go back. We want more scripture references for this stuff. 
So these knowledgeable men of spiritual influence go back, study even more, get all the references, and they come back, and Parliament says, okay, yeah, this is Orthodox Christian faith, and we want this to undergird what we do as a parliament. That to be said, Psalm 19 breaks it up for us a little bit better. Okay, so essentially this is the catechism, but in the psalm form, which is really the better one. In Psalm 19.1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto, under, and night, unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Okay, so again, we know from uh, Romans 1 and from Psalm 19 that the heavens and the creation, just it's so spectacular, it's so beautiful, it's so intricate, it's so glorious. Obviously, there's a creator. Obviously, this creator is just glorious and holy and magnificent. There is no one like him. And it, it puts men at a place, Romans tells us, where they are without excuse. Okay, Every man knows in their heart, because of the preaching of creation, that there's a creator God. But our psalm goes on to say that the Westminster Confession goes on to agree with, says that it's not just creation. That's not enough to figure out what to do with all that stuff. And so even our psalm goes on to say in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So it goes on from creation, and look what all creation can do, to like, okay, but now brass tacks, it comes out. You want to get saved, the word of God makes you wise for salvation. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, just does a fantastic job by David, by the poet, by saying, you know what, look at all that the Bible is profitable for. The inspired word. It changes a man. It just points that man and puts that man in that direction where they can be saved. Because they're already brought under conviction for their sin against the creator of the universe. What do they do with that conviction? I uh, quoted Romans enough um, uh, to go on to say, we just want to conclude. It just tells you, okay, so we're not going to chapter 4 next week. We're going to do chapter 3, finish out the chapter next week. So we can have the worship team come on up. But the Bible makes us wise. So are we prepared to listen to what it has to say? The Bible makes us wise for salvation. Have you ever been lost it's so easy to think you're going in the right way and then to find out that you're not. Case in point. Whoa, hello, whoa, hey. Case in point, uh, Russell and I were hunting this year. 
And uh, man, there's this beautiful new app called the Onyx hunting app, you know. And so we are, uh, we're going along and we're going along and we're having a great time and we're just going to work from a, a northern road and we're going to work our way uh, south on this road. We're going to work our way along a, an easterly route and then bust on down to the southern crossing road. And as we get going, you know, we realize that, uh, yeah, um, hey dad, it's time to check the map, see where we're going. And, and next thing you know, we're heading pretty good westerly course, you know. And so we put the app off and we just keep hunting and stalking and, you know, not making any noise or cracking any twigs or eating any potato chips or anything like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as we're going, next thing you know is we're just, you know, looking at the app and we've made like a total figure eight, you know, and you can see it right there. You guys see the figure eight? Start out to the right. Oh, it's nice. Okay, let's break down. We're going to go south to this road. Okay, let's, let's go. Oh, no. Okay, now. You know, part of this ends up being, Dad, I'm tired. Let's just head back to the truck. You know, so we start, okay, we'll go back up to the truck. And, and uh, oh, oh, what do you know? Yeah, we went past it. Oh, now we're going, oh, oh, gosh, oh, way back up, you know. And so thankful for those maps that we have, the compasses that we have to put us in right course, you know, to put us in right direction. And that's what the word of God is for us. How much of the world right now thinks they're going in the right direction? And if you were to bring the word of God out and share them the course that they're on, they will see there's a few figure eights going on. There's a few loop-de-loos, you know. Uh, there's some full-blown diversion from the path when the Lord would really desire us to keep the path. And he's shown us the path. Everything pertaining to life, godliness, wisdom, morality, the future. And the Lord maybe doesn't tell us everything about everything, all right? The name of your wife wasn't in the Bible when you were searching for that lady, you know. But there's a whole lot about what kind of lady you should be looking for. And if you open your heart up to some wise counselors around you, there may, there's times that they'd be like, it ain't that lady, I'll tell you that. But have you considered this lady over here? Happens to be my sister, but a great option. Man, come to the word. Come to the word. Makes us wise for salvation. Let's go ahead and set our things aside. And 